Hello and welcome to the Spike podcast. I'm Fraser Myers and back with me this week we have Spike's editor Tom Slater. Hello. And back with us, uh, it's been a while actually, uh, it's trade unionist and writer Paul Embury. Good to see you. Great to have you back. So coming up on today's show we'll be talking about the Hugh Edwards scandal, the emptiness of Keir Starmer and the trans activists that wants us all to go out and punch a turf in the face. So finally, the mystery BBC presenter behind the big scandal that's been on every front page uh, for the past week or so was revealed to be Hugh Edwards. He's alleged to have exchanged money for uh, sex pictures with a youngster who's uh, addicted to drugs. Tom, I mean, what have you made of this scandal? It's been a hell of a ride. I mean, you say, to great surprise, it was very strange and farcical given the fact that everyone in the media, most people who went on social media had already essentially established who it was. Yeah. Maybe we'll get into the fact that these ridiculous kind of privacy restrictions have where I don't see it serving anyone's privacy, certainly not the other BBC presenters who were falsely accused of being this individual. So we've kind of got out of that very kind of farcical stage now at least. But I have to say the thing I'm most struck by now is the way in which people who are really defending Edwards to the hill seems to me to be doing so on incredibly spurious and hypocritical grounds. Now, of course, like Hugh Edwards, I don't know what, what went on. We haven't really heard his side of the story. He's unfortunately hospitalized at the moment with his mental health issues. His, the statement that his wife put out that essentially ousted him as the individual in the frame has said that he will push back in due course on these specific matters. So we wait to hear that. I don't want to see him cast out of public life on the basis of allegations from one newspaper alone. All that being said, there has been this tendency on the part of people who either have an axe to grind with The Sun and the tabloids or who were just personally friendly with Edwards to act like this wasn't a story to begin with. Yeah. To act as if revelations that a very high-paid taxpayer paid, incidentally, member of public life who was engaging allegedly in this kind of activity, that that wasn't something that may have been something that a newspaper might have been interested in publishing. They've fallen back on this line that because it seems like it wasn't criminal, at least according to the Mets who have said that there's nothing from what they've seen that would suggest any crime has been committed. That therefore there's nothing there. I mean, if that's the standard going forward, that if a crime isn't committed, you don't report on misdeeds, then it's a bit, a bit of an odd standard to set, I think. Yeah. But also I am just struck by the fact that w without wanting to engage in some sort of whataboutery or whatever, if this was someone who was a similarly prominent, say, right-wing commentator, I dare say there would have been as much condemnation from the people currently defending Hugh Edwards for even much lesser alleged misdeeds because mm. we have seen that in the recent past so more than anything i'm struck by the kind of the high hypocrisy at this point which um has really been pretty pretty striking you know even in the midst of us not knowing much of what's going on the responses have been very striking in that regard i think yeah paul i mean obviously you know we wouldn't want to see hugh edwards crucified or anything like that and there can be a kind of unpleasantness when you know certain allegations are raised uh, about public figures but we know it would be different if this was someone else. Oh, it would be. I mean, it's it's been a sight to behold, hasn't it? Watching, you know, the, the liberal establishment rush to pour tributes and love and sympathy on Hugh Edwards. I've absolutely no doubt that if, you know, I tweeted today, if it was a, a GB news presenter instead yeah. of a BBC presenter, um, if it was a Tory MP, um, their approach would have been, you know, significantly different I'm sure of that so it's the hypocrisy um I agree with Tom that there, there is an enormous amount of hypocrisy and in many cases don't forget these these were the same people who were, were 
pushing the Me Too campaign, yeah, um, which you know at the extreme end actually ruined careers unfairly. I mean, it was in 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 large part, in my view, that was a, a campaign that was bordering on hysterical, mm-hmm. um, where you know even even a bit of mild flirting, and you know no one would defend sexual harassment, of course, but even a bit of mild flirting, you know, people's careers were put into the deep freeze mm-hmm. and stuff like that, and. It just seems to me that, you know, if if you're someone who politically, you know, someone within the liberal establishment doesn't like, then you're fair game. But yes, if it's someone who's mm-hmm. kind of on our side and working for an institution that's sort of on our side, um, then it's okay. We'll go a bit soft on on that person. Um, and I, I just think as well. I mean, these things are, are very painful. Um, you know, there are families involved. I don't think we should forget that. I remember the, the Matt Hancock affair a couple of years ago, and there was that terrible picture of his wife uh, coming out of a front gate, and there were just always mm-hmm. paparazzi mm-hmm. there. And of course, you know, his, his wife and kids who did not stand for public office, and you know, I think I think didn't deserve to go through that sort of thing. Uh, and we should perhaps remember them. But I. I tend to agree with, with Tommy in terms of the, the privacy issue. I mean, I, I don't think that if you are a significant, very well-paid figure within the BBC, you're, you're a national figurehead mm-hmm. in many respects, um, and you are allegedly, uh, let's say that word allegedly, uh, engaging in morally dubious behaviour, I don't think you can say no one is ever allowed to report on that. That doesn't mean that we all have to be interested in it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm not that interested in it, to be perfectly honest. What, what Hugh Edwards is sexual proclivities are and I've got no interest in that at all but um, at the same time I don't necessarily think that we should say that the that, that, you know alleged behavior of that kind whether it's Hugh Edwards or someone else should be should be completely off limits yeah and there does seem to be this problem with um, privacy law essentially mm. um, where that seems to explain the media's nervousness about naming him you know one of the terrible things about this is that we our parliament has never voted for a privacy law there has never been an agreed um, definition by MPs over what should be private and what shouldn't. Mm-hmm. This law has come about essentially through, um, it's been judge made. Mm-hmm. It's a product of the Human Rights Act, but it's really, it's been judges who have interpreted that act uh, in such a way that has meant that media outlets are nervous about reporting things that they know to be true. Mm-hmm. And in this case, I think that's been shown for everyone to see. I mean, the it's, it's so obvious that privacy is obviously very good and very important. Privacy laws, on the other hand, can create all kinds of very liberal but also farcical consequences. In this situation, you had where everyone knew more or less <laughs> who this individual was. His name was already really being dragged through the mud, if you want to put it in those particular terms. And yet we were unable to talk about it openly. Newspapers weren't allowed to name him. As a consequence that amongst the pool of people who maybe weren't 100% sure, it created a lot of room for people to throw accusations at Jeremy Vine or Nicky Campbell or whoever else it might be. So it's obviously ridiculous. But as you say, the fundamental problem with it is the fact that this wasn't a law that was debated in Parliament, that was had out in public, that was something which we as a society, roughly speaking, decided was where we needed to go. This is the product of these particular rulings. And it does just make you worry about how much along the, on these kind of human rights grounds you could have incursions, not just into what the press can talk about, but also what the public can talk about. All of those warnings that were going out on the airwaves all throughout the week of be careful what you tweet, be careful what you say, because you could also find yourselves in legal trouble for talking about this case. This has gone far beyond limiting what the Sun newspaper or anyone at News Corp is able to do. It's even about us as citizens yeah. in the social media age being able to discuss these things. So hopefully that will 
maybe spark some kind of awakening about what the consequences of these privacy laws are and how particularly illegitimate they are, given the fact that they weren't actually forged by our own elected representatives and properly debated and discussed in that sense. And, and Paul, you, you said earlier, you know, you weren't particularly interested in uh, Hugh Edwards' private life. Um, I think a lot of people might feel the same way and think, you know, this is obviously an important story for the newspapers to pursue, but why did it dominate the headlines for so long, for the best part of a week, and it's carrying on now? Um, do you think it's that maybe the media is just a bit obsessed with itself? Because we saw a similar thing with Schofield as well, even the sort of Gary Lineker affair. Um, was the biggest story, and it has to now involve. It gets the prime minister involved. It gets the, you know, everyone has to have an opinion on it. Yeah, look, I mean, the, the the truth is, we have a media and political class that are obsessed with stuff going on in their own little bubble, mm-hmm. um, and really don't cover with anything like, you know, the weight that they should do stories that affect most people. Now there will be you know, and issues that affect most people's everyday lives. There will be and you know, some people who, who will be reading the, the, the sort of Hugh Edwards stuff uh, voraciously, no doubt about it, and, you know, they'll, they'll get their pound of flesh. But I think, actually, you, you've, got to, you've got to get things in proportion. We're living in a cost-of-living crisis at the moment. You know, you've got war going on on the continent of Europe. You've got people really struggling to make ends meet. You've got public services falling apart. You've got a political class that is probably more disconnected from ordinary working people than I think at any time in my adult lifetime, to be honest. Um, and I think this kind of stuff just shows, you know, the, the kind of navel gazing that goes on within the within the SW1 bubble. Um, and, you know, as I come back to the point, it doesn't mean that people shouldn't report on it. I mean, yeah. I, Tom said earlier... Um, I think he's absolutely right. It shouldn't just be about you know if something if something is legal, then that's that's mm-hmm. fine. You know, there's there's mm-hmm. no story there because we don't live in a moral vacuum. There are lots and lots of things. You know, you could be you could be a high court judge who makes a pass at every sixteen year old intern that you come across. Mm-hmm. Um, probably legal, mm-hmm. I guess. But yeah. you know, is anyone really going to say that's <laughs> anyone really going to say that's his private life? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> no doubt, the people who are, who are arguing. That Hugh Edwards, you know, that now well, we should defend him, defend his privacy. If, if it was some sort of crusty old high court judge, yeah. people would probably be taking the opposite view. So, so we don't live in a moral vacuum. And, and my my fear is the, um, you know, the, the, there's a danger with the privacy, the whole privacy thing that it becomes a slippery slope. That I think there's a I think there's a contradiction here that actually we're living in the days of social media and the internet where we were told there'd be the free free flow of exchange more than ever. Yeah, and actually privacy law, if anything, seems to be seems to be getting tighter. And the slippery slope is you say, okay, today we're not going to report on Hugh, Ed- Hugh Edwards as sort of major figure within the BBC allegedly committing some sort of dubious behaviour. Um, what does it become tomorrow? It becomes something. You know, mm-hmm. which is even more restrictive than that in terms yeah. of whether or not we can report. And when it becomes a slippery slope like that, I think it, it, it behoves anyone who believes in the freedom of the press mm-hmm. to stand against it. And and that slippery slope as well. I think where that's going at the moment is towards reviving a lot of the discussions around press regulation. And we've yeah. already seen Labour, which I know we're going to get onto in a second, um, indicate that they're interested in kind of activating this long dormant section of the Crime and Courts Act, Section 40, that would effectively compel publishers to sign up to some form of state-backed regulator that was essentially kind of taking the unfinished business of the Leveson inquiry and trying to put that right back at the center 
it's worth remembering that Ed Miliband, who's obviously very involved in this current iteration of the Labour Party, um, was very um, much involved in that kind of original crusade against the tabloid press. And you do feel like the combination of the Hugh Edwards story, as well as just the kind of general mood music at, this mo at the moment, is towards trying to go back to that particular campaign to shackle the press. All the usual suspects hacked off and so on have suddenly got their tails up again. Mm. So that does feel like where the debate is going, regrettably, in my view, for the minute. So this month, Labour activists, MPs and various trade unionists will be meeting for Labour's annual National Policy Forum. Uh, Keir Starmer's party is riding high in the polls, but a lot of people are asking, you know, what policies are we going to get if a Labour government actually materialises? I mean, there's been, you know, a lack of detail, certainly, from uh, the leadership. There's been rows over everything from tuition fees to green policy to the economy. Rachel Reeves uh, last week said that the Labour government, the next Labour government, will probably stick to the Conservative spending plans. So, you know, is this <laughs> are, are we unclear as to what um, Keir Starmer stands for, and is that a problem, Paul? Oh, it's all so encouraging, isn't it? I mean, <laughs> I mean it, it, there's there's an absence of radicalism, there's an absence of ideology, not just within the Labour Party. I think across politics generally, mm. actually. I mean, I. I I suspect what might happen is we might see something like what happened in the most recent Australian election where the Labour Party won it, but not because they really inspired anyone, mm -hmm. just yeah. because they were seen as the worst of the, of, the, of the bad bunch and they kind of got over the line that way. And, and I suspect at the next election that could be something um, that, that might happen in Britain. Um, and talking about you know the absence of, of ideology, I was reading only this morning, actually, uh, an account of the... Uh, 1976 Sterling crisis in Britain under the Jim Callaghan government um, when the Labour government went cap in hand, as the saying goes, to, to the IMF to get, uh, to get a loan. Um, and when you read the accounts of what happened in that Labour cabinet, there were some real heavyweights in that cabinet. Yeah. The likes of Tony Benn on the left who were arguing for a particular economic and alternative economic strategy. You had Healy on the right. He was arguing we've got to capitulate to the IMF and please the markets. You had people like Tony Crossland, intellectuals and whatever. He was kind of in, in the middle between the two. And there were, there were regular cabinet meetings, and this is all documented, where they were really thrashing out those ideas, mm -hmm. you know, radical ideas in many respects and, and having those big kind of uh, set-piece contentious debates. And, and I honestly can't really imagine anything like that taking place mm -hmm. in yeah. the Labour Party today. I cannot imagine people in the Labour Party, it's my party, but I can't imagine people in the front bench of the Labour Party sitting around the shadow cabinet saying, right, we've got a big cost of living crisis going on at the moment. You know, we've, we've got a, a listless economy. We've got no growth. Um, we've, we've got a, we're, we're on the brink of a recession. We've got interest rates going up. We've got people struggling to pay their mortgages. We've got a threat of a recession and unemployment and, and businesses closing and repossessions and all the rest of it. How do we get out of that? What do we do as a country to grow our economy at the same time as protecting working class people? How do we make our, our economy more productive? How do we make it more competitive? You know, what, what are the ideas? Uh, instead of which, what they tend to do, as far as I can see, is say, well, you know, the market's no best. Yeah. Um, these people are the real experts. Mm -hmm. I think business are the real experts. Yeah, we can do a little bit, you know, on welfare payments and a little bit around tax and stuff like that. But in terms of macroeconomic ideas, we've got no idea about that. Let the Bank of England decide. Yeah. Mm -hmm. We're not really capable of doing that. Um, 
you know, let's not ever challenge the financial markets in the city of London. They're, they're too important. Um, and the whole thing really is pretty depressing, um, to be honest. And, and there doesn't seem to me um, to be any particular party or any group of politicians who have got that kind of ideological heft and spark to be able to say, we need a radical change in this country. There's very, very few people in the Labour Party uh, who I think have got that ability. Most of them would be happy just to give power to the EU, give power mm-hmm. to the Bank of England, yeah. then decide everything. Um, so, so yeah, quite depressing. <laughs> yeah, just, to, just to make it even more depressing, it's not only that Labour is not having these great internal debates, um, they're not even having a debate with the Tories about the state of the mm-hmm. economy, about many of the sort of most important policies. Yeah. Um, no, there's some disagreement over whether women can have penises, whether it's yeah, 9% and, that and, don't or one or 100%, but that's about it. <laughs> that's as far as we get. No, it is striking how on the one hand you have, if, you, if you're a Labour shadow cabinet and your response to the economic situation the country finds itself in and the economic stewardship that the Tories are offering is if it ain't broke, don't fix it. And we should just shuffle some of the money around here or there and... If you want to do new spending, as Rachel Reeves has said to her various colleagues, you need to find it from inside your own department. I mean, everything is so much about kind of shuffling the deck chairs and the Titanic. Once it goes down, it feels like. But I think Paul's point about the um, stature of politicians is so striking. It's worth saying it's not just in the Labour Party either. You're sur- you know, it's a sort of den of pygmies, Westminster, really, yeah. these days, with some noble exceptions. And you think whilst, you know, Starmer's cabinet, shadow cabinet, certainly is dwarfed by, if you compare them to likes of Crosland or Ben or Healy or whatever. But even the kind of Tony Blair comparisons don't really stack up. You know, I'd, I'd yeah. loathe Tony Blair and what that government did in many respects quite passionately. But at the same time, he had a project of sorts, yeah. you know, whether it was in terms of turning the Labour Party against what it was traditionally there to do. Uh, we could talk about Iraq. We could talk about all kinds of other things. But he had something about him, at least in comparison to Keir Starmer, who seems to be a sort of triangulation of a triangulator he's sort of he's several kind of iterations along of a sort of managerial politician who is surrounded by people who are equally unimpressive and there's also the kind of um, discussion that happens internally within Labour about um, the leadership's very hard line with anyone who's kind of pushing back against their agenda hard line with the left kicking Jeremy Corbyn out of the Labour Party and so on all of which I agree has been very anti-democratic but you also think you're doing this against the left, which is similarly unimpressive and unthreatening. You know, yes. if if the socialist campaign group chaired by Richard Bergen or whoever else it is at this point is the biggest thing you've got to worry about, then surely think you haven't got that much to worry about, really. So it just feels like on all sides of the Labour discussion, but also Westminster in general, really, you've just got different flavours of managerialists and a kind of few faux radicals who just make a bit of noise from time to time. The lack of substance, the lack of politics, really, to it has been really, really striking, particularly going into... As you say, the closer we get to the election, the more it feels like Labour's bluff is being called. What is it that you actually want to do? Yeah. And the answer being Jeremy Hunt, but with a smile. It doesn't really work, does it? <laughs> and and it is striking the the U-turns, just because there's been so many. Obviously, mm. politicians make U-turns all the time, but Starmer has become an, a, an expert on it. You know, only a few weeks ago, he was um, trailing his plans, exciting plans for oil-free Britain. Now he's going around saying, I hate tree huggers. It's 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 always always like night and day difference. He can't even <laughs> you can't find take two positions and find a middle one. Even he he has to go for the complete opposite of the thing he said a few weeks ago. I think there's a danger that if, if as a politician, especially in this day and age where everyone's got access to clips on social media mm-hmm. and whatever, where where you are repeatedly seen 
as saying one thing at one moment in time because you think it's going to get you the leadership or whatever, and then two years down the line, three years down the line, you say the complete opposite. I mean, all politicians do that to a certain degree, and you know, they, they get away with it to a certain mm -hmm. degree. But if you're seen to do it on pretty much everything, mm -hmm. um, then the danger is people just kind of say, well, well, we can't trust you really because you know you just, mm -hmm. just like to get the leadership, and, and why would you not do anything? Why would you not do the same when you actually, or if you get into number 10 down the street? I think Kinnock had that problem. Actually. Yeah, when you think of Kinnock, he came from the left. You know, he came from the radical left within the Labour Party. Um, you know, a boy from the the South Wales valleys, and was always associated with the left. Uh, and then when he became leader in the 1980s, and you know, moved to to the right on many questions, nuclear weapons, and so on. Uh, in the end, people felt, well, we can't really trust mm -hmm. you know because you you you. You're just doing this because you want to gain power. And yeah. in the end, I think the public kind of like people with a bit of integrity, mm. even if they don't necessarily agree mm. with them. If you're somebody who goes out there and argues your case and fights your corner and takes on all comers and says, look, whatever stick I'm going to get, this is what I believe. And you might disagree with me, but I'm going to argue for it anyway. Take me as I am. Um, I think in the end, people have a bit of respect for that and they, they prefer that. Um, to someone who just tries to be on message the whole time and tries to please everybody and tries to avoid saying anything controversial. Um, but I do, you know, I go back to the discussion that we were having before. I do think we 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 are desperate in this country for for ideas, for radicalism, mm -hmm. for for the return of, of ideology. You know, how how do we revitalise our industry? How do we reinvigorate the real economy and move away from reliance on financial services? How do we deal with some of the big cultural issues that are facing us at the moment, you know, where there is this massive disconnect um, between the political and cultural elites on some of the fundamental questions and ordinary people out there in mainstream Britain? Uh, nobody, nobody on the left, I don't think, and, and as has been said across politics, mainstream politics generally seems to have any of the answers to that stuff. I just wanted to let you know that there are still a few signed copies left of Brendan O'Neill's new book, A Heretic's Manifesto. Now, the only way to get your hands on one of these is by donating £50 or more to Spiked. And if you do that, not only will you get a signed copy of this brilliant book, you'll also get access to Spiked Supporters, our online donor community. Spiked Supporters is packed full of exclusive perks, and membership is usually £50 for the year anyway, so all in all, it's a hell of a deal. To make your donation and to claim your signed copy of A Heretic's Manifesto and to become a Spike supporter, just go to spiked-online.com forward slash donate. That's spiked-online.com forward slash donate. So at the London Trans Plus Pride Parade uh, this weekend, a trans activist came on stage and called for women to be violently punched. Let's have a look at the clip. I was going to come here and be really fluffy and be really nice and say, yeah, be really lovely and queer and gay. No, if you see a turf, punch him in the fucking face. So this man, he calls himself Sarah. He's actually an ex-con. He has been in prison for 30 years for kidnapping and attempted murder. And yet there he is calling for violence against women, essentially, for women to be punched in the face. And everyone is cheering. Paul, make it make sense to me, please. How can you make any of this stuff make sense? 
Um, look, I mean, I'm, I'm a, I would describe myself as a, as a near absolutist on free speech. Um, but when it comes to things like inciting violence against people of that kind, I think it's off limits. I think actually if you get your collar felt because you've said that certain people should be physically attacked, um, in this case, you know, women, um, then I don't think you should have any complaints if, if, um, if PC pod comes along and, and arrests you. Um, and it, it seems to me that all of this, you know, people often say politicians who, who just don't like these sorts of debates and want to try and please everybody. They say things like, you know, we could need to take the heat out of the mm -hmm. situation. Or also, yeah. they need to take the heat out of the situation, almost like a play nice kid children. Mm -hmm. thing. And from what I can see, all of the, the kind of violence and unpleasantness comes from one side in yeah. the debate. I mean, I know lots of gender critical feminists, as they're called, gender critical. Um, I don't know any of them who would dream of saying anything like that against any of their opponents. What they mm -hmm. tend to do is to try to have, yes, they're, you know, they're, they're passionate about their cause and they fight their corner, um, but they try to argue their case. They try to use the weight of argument. Uh, and it seems to me that all of the, the abuse and the harassment is, is coming from the other side. I don't see gender-critical feminists laying siege to people who are having a pro-trans meeting yeah. and trying to disrupt it and, you know, lobbing things at them mm -hmm. and trying to shut them down and, and fight them and so on. Um, and, you know, I think it's why so many of them get get so angry at the unfairness of it. But look, this this stuff is crazy. This 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 stuff, people, people out there in mainstream Britain are looking at this sort of stuff and looking at uh, the debate and looking at the position of some of our kind of political and cultural elites and listening to Keir Starmer say, you know, for 99% of women, it's biology, 99.9% women, <laughs> biology matters, but for 0.1%, almost as if you can set the rules of biology aside for 0.1% mm. of, of women, you know, a, a biology doesn't apply to you, where of course it does. Um, <laughs> and I, I do think as well, this is an example um, of what I would call overreach from the, the sort of radical trans movement, where a few years ago, I think the, before this debate kicked off a few years ago, I think the view of most people in this country is if someone was kind of trans and man and wanted to live their life as a woman, whatever that means, um, most people would probably say, okay, look, get on with it. I'm, I'm not that troubled by it. Just, yeah, yeah. You know, do, do what you want, mate, as long as you're not kind of interfering with me. Mm -hmm. But as the demands became more and more extreme and more and more irrational, mm -hmm. and it became about inserting yourself into women's sports and, you know, women's single sex places uh, and, you know, school children, their toilets and stuff like that. I think that's when most people kind of went, well, hold on a second. This, mm -hmm. this wasn't the deal. You know, yeah. I mean, we, we were not expecting this. This is not what we signed up for. And that kind of overreach from the trans movement in terms of those demands has backfired in a massive way. And they're not going to win this campaign. I mean, when you look at you look at the sort of ranks of, of women who are absolutely passionate about defending their own sex-based rights with yeah. good reason. I know some of these women, and they will not be defeated. Mm -hmm. You know, this this debate in the end, I think this this battle will only go one way. But but people within the radical trans movement just don't know that yet. Yeah, Tom. I mean, how is how is this sort of keep happening where there's you know trans activists who are either making violent mm -hmm. threats or you think back to the sort of um, what happened to Posey Parker in New Zealand a couple of months ago, um, essentially attacked by trans activists. Mm -hmm. What the hell is going on? Well, it keeps happening. As you say, so there was the Posey Parker incident down under. She's also faced, and certainly her organisation and group have faced um, violence and threats from time to time before. 
I remember the first time that this issue really kind of got onto my radar in terms of how toxic it was getting was back in 2017 or 2018, I think, one of the early kind of gender critical meetings amongst the sort of certain, the cohort that we know of now was taking place and they already had to meet in Hyde Park to then go to a secret venue because the venue they had previously had already been shut down. And there was a 60-year-old woman called Maria McLaughlin, I think, um, who was punched in the face by a 26-year-old male. And you thought, what the hell is going on here? Not least because it was not really front page news. People weren't really condemning it. There was even, even at the trial that eventually took place, the judge chided McLaughlin for not using the gentleman's chosen pronouns when that took place. And so this, these things keep happening as we're talking about, not just in relation to physical violence, but also the threats, the things that didn't happen, mm. the kinds of horrible things that ended up with Kathleen Stock having to leave the University of Sussex, Joe Phoenix, who was a open university academic who was supposed to speak at Essex. She was no platform. There were flyers being circulated with um, pictures of a handgun and shut the fuck up turf on it. And yeah. you think, show me one single example of Kelly J. Keane mm. or Julie Bentall or Kathleen Stock or any of these other trans activists or even some hangers-on doing this. Show me an example of even some nutcase doing it and then those individuals I've just mentioned failing to condemn it. It's completely in one direction. And the thing about what happened at the Trans Pride Plus Parade over the weekend, what was most shocking was the reaction to it. I mean, this particular individual, you know, as you say, has been in and out of prison, seems a pretty crazed individual in many respects. But at the same time, it was the fact that as soon as he'd made his little tirade, there was applause, yeah. there was cheering, the response from Sadiq Khan, the London mayor, was to reiterate his support for the LGBT plus question mark, et cetera, community. And then with a bit of kind of after the fact throat clearing about not liking violence, you had Clive Lewis from the Labour Party saying, essentially, all of, you know, of course, calling for violence is wrong, but we'd be lying if we were saying it was going from one direction. And then the response from the trans plus pride organisers, which was to say, of course, we don't like violence, but Sarah was expressing her anger. Mm that many people feel, and they should be able to vent that. And you think you're really morally lost if you're defending a male calling for, let's be clear about this, women yeah. to be punched in the face. That's what TERF means. It means yeah. a gender-critical woman, often of a certain age. That's the kind of caricature that they have in their heads. So how that isn't something that sparks condemnation, how that's something that's kind of just brushed under the carpet as people getting a bit carried away with themselves, particularly in an age in which we're encouraged to take offence at even the mildest slights, tells you something about how morally lost that particular movement is, but also how cowardly a lot of people who should know better are in the face of it. You, But I agree with Paul as far as I think that is starting to change, not least because of the bravery of these campaigners and these gender-critical individuals. But the fact that we ever got ourselves into this position in the first place, I think, is um, deeply troubling, really. And and I don't want to focus too much on this, this one individual, but it is interesting that um, their story is of... Cut his own says he cut his own balls off with a razor in prison, and then claims to have eaten them because he didn't want someone to sew them back on. Now you'd think that the trans movement would want to distance itself from these kind of obviously quite uh, not very sane individuals, but because it is so dogmatic, because it said says that anyone who says they are a woman is a woman, they can't distance themselves, can they? They they're kind of stuck with these people, and. It seems to me that the same people who will often say to us, whether it's on COVID um, or climate change or whatever, follow the science. On this issue, they seem very happy to sort of put the science aside and say, 
it's not really about the science, you know, it's about people's feelings. And yeah. if that person feels that way, then actually that's how the rest of society should treat them. And and I just don't think you should ever as a society find yourself in a position where you are elevating feelings over facts. Um and, and that's what we've done on this. And and in any other with any other kind of characteristic whether it's your race, whether it's your nationality, whether it's your age or whatever, if somebody tried to claim they were something other than mm-hmm. what they were, yeah. if I said I was four foot two when I'm actually six foot one, <laughs> um, you know, if, if you said you were, you know, Afro-Caribbean when, when obviously, you know, I don't think you're Afro-Caribbean. No, no, no. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> best not to assume these days. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Um, then people would kind of look at you and say, well, hold on a second. <laughs> Let's not be stupid about that. But but when it comes to this, when it comes to a man saying, no, I am a woman mm-hmm. um, and you should treat me as such, people kind of, some people back off and say, yeah, that's exactly how um, we should treat people, how we should treat these people. But imagine if you're a woman who, who kind of saw the whole concepts of womanhood being appropriated like that. Um and we we don't do it for any other characteristic, but we say that actually women are fair game. We can appropriate, you know, your biological sex and say that it's easy mm-hmm. enough for anybody to be. And if you have got a problem with that, you, you're a bigot. Um, that seems to me to be completely mental, frankly. And it's, it's also just reviving the most unvarnished kind of misogyny. I mean, if we talk about all the cases that we've been talking about, whether it's Kelly J. Keane in New Zealand or whether it's um, the various kind of women's rights or gender critical groups who have faced the most not only violent and threatening response, but often very explicitly misogynistic kind of response, you know, sexualized, vile insults and so on, rape threats and such like, when you've got women who are trying to just do something as simple as to organize, to gather and to speak in public to defend their rights and their response is, fuck off you Nazis. What You can't really put this down to anything other than a kind of woke misogyny which has been rehabilitated by this particular movement and surely this image of an individual calling for women to be punched in the face and everyone cheering if that's not going to be the point in which we will have to kind of take a step back and realize what has happened here i don't really know what will to be frank thank you for listening to the spike podcast we're back every friday and you can now watch us on video too check us out on youtube or go via the spiked website which is spiked-online.com. See you next time.